0: Well, it's my privilege and pleasure to say, open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We are now in the book of Exodus. Praise the Lord. Oh, why? All of you should have received this. Did everyone get an outline? If you didn't get an outline, we'll have you get one at the end of service, but we should have an outline for you. Hopefully, it'll be helpful as we study this book. There is so much to get out of this book. And if you'll you'll bear with me here for a few moments, which could turn into half the service. Um, I'm going to introduce this book by going through the intro, you know, kind of author, dating, and all the normal stuff. And then we'll go line by line as we normally do, you know, as we exegete scripture. Well, the English name for Exodus comes from the Vulgate, actually the Septuagint. That's where we get the name in the English for the for the word Exodus, which means departure or going out. But the actual name, if you look in verse one, now these are the names in Hebrew. The name for this book is names, right? Not Super creative, pretty straightforward. It was names. It was listing the names. The other thing I'd point out to you, and we'll talk a little bit about this more, is that word now. now. In many of your uh, scriptures, you have, if you're using King James or New King James, it has the word now in there. And that actual word in the Hebrew is and. And we're going to talk about why that's important. Because as we look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right, all the way up through Deuteronomy, every single book is going to begin with the word, and it's a conjunction, and. And I'll talk a little bit more why that's important. So the book of Genesis, was what, what was it about? Beginnings, right? Beginnings. And the book of Exodus is twofold. It's about not only the book of deliverance, because we'll see that as God delivers his people out of slavery and bondage. But the other thing the book is about is this is the first time that we see God making an individual covenant With his people. In other words, naturalistically, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we saw a covenant established, but it was a covenant for Israel, for the children and descendants, but not individual. Now we're going to be ushered in or see ushered in the Mosaic covenant, which is going to be given to the people. The Abrahamic covenant, if you look at it, was a royal grant covenant, and we'll talk more about that. I get so excited I want to get ahead of myself. But as we look at it, that's the two main thrusts of the book of Exodus is a covenant with God's people and the deliverance of God's people, okay? Now, we also are introduced to a man by the name of Moses. In the book of Genesis, the almost latter half of the entire book, some 12 plus chapters, we were introduced to a man by the name of Joseph. And this man did many great things for the Lord, but he also through, went through tremendous heartache and suffering, didn't he? From a very young age, being brought into You know, captivity, he too understood what it was to be in slavery and bondage. In a different way, he was put in prison. He was falsely accused. He knows what it was to struggle and wrestle with sin on a constant basis. Not necessarily his sin entirely, but looking at the sin of all those other people that tried to basically lay a trip on him. I think of, what, Potiphar's wife, right? Laying a trip on him. And we see that over and over again. But but here we're going to be introduced to this other man, Moses. And when you begin to see what God has done here, much like how God placed Joseph for that appointed time to provide or provide provisions for his people, because God does provide where he guides, we're going to see this man, Moses, too, is going to be uniquely put in this position. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to see how this man will end up in such an educated home at just a time like this, where he not only learns all the great things of Egypt, all the learns, of, but then he's able to turn around and then lead the people of God out and then begun, begin establishing instruction and we move into Leviticus and everything else. And it's just, it's amazing to see how this, this works. Now let's talk about authorship. Exodus will span some 430 years. We know that because of Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. And it's believed to be written and inspired by obviously the Holy Spirit, but using this man, Moses. Now, there are some that try to say, well, how could a man like Moses do that? You know, how was he able to write these books? I would argue, how was Peter, you know, John, Mark, any of the disciples able to do that other than maybe Luke or Paul? It's always through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you get a bunch of guys and you put them in a seminary somewhere and they got nothing better to do, they'll start trying to figure out how to be critics. And, you know, that's why it ends up to be a seminary in, 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 in seminary, literally, a cemetery in seminary, right? So Acts chapter 7, verse 22 tells us Moses was very well educated. We're told that in, um, really in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, that Moses was told to write down everything he saw detail by detail. Joshua's military encounter with the Amalekites is an example. Exodus chapter 24-4 tells us Moses wrote down all that he saw. The recording was the book of the covenant. So that covenant, that relationship established, God had ordained and told Moses, write all of this down. Other books such as Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 24 describe Moses writing down the law from the very beginning to the end. And if that wasn't enough, we have other references. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. And I think prominently, if I could say it that way with you all tonight, prominently, Jesus Christ himself. In Mark chapter 7, verse 10, and Mark chapter 12, verse 26, says what? He quotes and Moses said, talking about the beginning, our very Lord and God, if it's good enough for Jesus to quote that Moses authored the Pentateuch, it's good enough for me. How about you? Good enough? If our Lord says it. Now, as we look at the dating, as we introduce a book, we've, we've talked a little bit of the purpose. Well, we'll talk more about that. But at least the authorship, the date, is, comes up and it's important. And boy, boy, we could take this service and next service just for me to go through the dating of Exodus because that's how many people have just absolutely abstracted, trying to fit secular history into the Bible or taking the Bible and trying to warp it to fit secular history. I'm going to say something really quick. This is very simple. This is authoritative. This is the word of God. It's God inspired. It's God breathed. If you want truth, you look at this book. It's 66 love letters. Anything you want to know about life, this is your instruction manual. If you go back to this very book, and you struggle with something you're seeing in the world or in history, be patient and wait for it. Because the last few thousand years where scientists came out and said, well, the sun and the earth and what revolves around what? Well, the Bible had it right. Every single time, not one time has the Bible ever been wrong. 100% of the time, there's no other written work ever put together, composed divinely. Right? as the Bible. It's alive. It's dynamic. It's, it's unlike anything else we can understand. I mean, we have nothing else to go to. It in itself is alive. It is the word, the very word of God. So as I say that, as we, we lead into this, it's important that we look at this book and There's really two main scholarly debates between what they call a late date for Exodus and an early date for Exodus. I'm not gonna bore you with all of that. I will talk a little bit about it because it's important of how we arrive at the dating. If you're taking notes, I highly encourage you to write this down because it's not always easy to go to one central place and be able to pull these dates, but it's all scriptural and it's all in the word of God. And if we do a little bit of math and a little bit of seeking, Praise Jesus, we come to the same thing over and over again. So just to, just to begin here, um, according to the Bible records or biblical record, the exodus occurs 480 years before Solomon laid the foundation of the temple at Jerusalem. Pastor, how do you know that? Good question. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that. So we begin with a date that we know concrete and stone. We know when the temple we know it would be 480 years. Are you with me? So we're starting with Scripture, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, and backing into a date. So the, we, we know that if, the, for example, 480 years, that would place the Exodus, just using that date alone, right? would put the Exodus where? Somewhere around 1446 B.C. Okay? Now, God's covenant with Abraham was 430 years before that. You might remember we've read that. We read it in Genesis. And it was in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. We'll see that date. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It's not in one single place. It's in multiple places. That would bring us, if you take that 1446 and you take the 430, that would bring us back to 1850. Why am I backing into this? Because I need to get us to the flood. Once I get us to the flood, I can then go back with you, and we all can do this, and say, was there, for example, pyramids before this date? 2330 is an example. The answer can't be. It was a worldwide flood. It destroyed everything. When the Jews or the Hebrews were taken to Israel, the Sphinx and the pyramids were already there. That gives us some of the dating, you know, basically using the the world standards for dating, we are able to come back and we can see why history has presented correct facts, but got the wrong dating. And that's what I, if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, that's what I'm going to be drawing out for you here tonight. So as I said, that gets us to 1850 B.C. Now, from the ages, if you look at the predecessors back to Noah, okay, given Genesis chapter 12 and 13, it can be calculated that the universal flood, and I say universal, worldwide, it was not a regional flood, occurred 427 years earlier, just doing the math of the generations. And we talked about that when we were going through Genesis, actually. That would bring us to 2302 B.C., very important number. That's when we believe Right around in that area was when we had the flood, the worldwide flood, around 2302. Now, as I mentioned, there's really two schools of thought on this, a late dating and an early dating of Exodus. So now we have to look at the secular authorities, the historians, okay? And what they do is they come back and they say, well, we believe that the pyramids were about 1550 and that the first dynasty would have been ruling because according to their tradition, if the pyramids were 1550 they're going to back up all the way to three, you know 3,000 BC to try to justify the first dynasty because there was multiple dynasties, 12th, 18th, and what have you, dynasties of Egypt. So now what their problem is is if we can date the worldwide flood at 2302 and they're talking about all these other dynasties and all this other stuff, and we know for a fact, because the word of God tells us that the earth and everything in it was pretty much destroyed and wiped out with a worldwide flood, that means that in five Well, six hundred and something years. Everything that Egypt takes their history and tries to roll it into, it it just can't be done. It would have to be. You're you're taking three thousand years worth of history, and they're trying to say, well, it would, you know, it would be in six hundred years. It can't be. The historians got it wrong. It's like when they try to carbon date a rock and they don't realize that the, I mean, it, it, so, they got it wrong. And, and then they're trying to come back to the Bible and goes, well, no, you got to reinterpret the Bible. We now have to make the 1100s, which we clearly know we had a kingdom. Dave, David was serving as the king of Israel at that time. We know Solomon's 900. We know these things. But if you'd start to turn around and push the date back, you have to move everything else in the biblical record back. Where do you draw the line? Next thing you know, you go back to Genesis chapter one through ten and going, you know what? If that's the case, we gotta push this, and then we have to introduce something called a gap theory. A bunch of junk, a bunch of lies and jargon. Why? Because they're trying so hard to take their secular history and try to cram it or get it to fit rather than just having the presupposition putting it aside for a moment, the best that they can, and looking at things with a biblical worldview. If we just took our lens from the Bible, how much easier our understanding would be in everything that we see and interpret. God said it was six literal days. He's not grammatically challenged. He's not, he's not turning around and saying, well, I meant six, but I meant 14. No, it was six literal days for creation, amen? And a day of rest. So if we back into this, and and I thank you for staying with me, if we back into this, clearly there's a conflict between secular history or Egyptian history and what the Bible teaches. Would you agree? Based on these, there's clearly a, a conflict, no matter how you try to come to this. Now, neither the first dynasty in Egypt nor the pyramids could have existed before the flood. Would you agree? Because you can go over to Egypt right now, and you can see the Sphinx, can't you? You can go over and see the Great Pyramid, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, can't you? As a matter of fact, you can see three of them there, right? The largest one being the Great Pyramid, taking up 13 acres, one of the largest artifacts we have on earth. There's no mistaking it. They made a little uh, movie my kids watched one time, and I, I don't remember what uh, cartoon it had, a th- uh, character in it, and, they, and he tries to go through and he, he tries to steal the, the, the pyramid, You know, I think he tries to steal the moon too or something like that. I don't know it's spicable to me. Some crazy thing like that. Whatever they were watching. But he tries to steal the pyramid and he puts up a bounce house that looks like a pyramid. And everybody's like, oh, that's the great pyramid, you know? And I'm sitting there and that's the same kind of nonsense. Just as illogical and unrealistic as that is, is the same idea of what you'd have to believe to look at non-biblical history and look at this and go, well, the Bible's wrong. It would require that same faith. Now, if the Bible historicity is accurate or reliable, which we all believe it is, right? We do. Then there must be a mistake with the interpretation of the Egyptian chronology. It needs to be reduced by several centuries to make it uh, fit according to what the Bible teaches. So, an acceptance of the, the chronological interpretation, if you will, of Egyptian history must reject the biblical chronology. They're mutually exclusive. What am I saying? You can't take the history of Egypt today as it stands and also say with one swift voice, I also believe the Bible to be true and inspired. You can't do it. They're mutually exclusive. Their dating doesn't line up. It's like someone saying that I believe the earth is millions of years old and I believe in the philosophy. Notice I didn't say science, the philosophy of evolution. You with me? can't be you either believe in six little days you believe in a year that a young earth that's five to six thousand years old because everything based off that in the chronology of the bible must follow that now you're thinking all i wanted to do is get into a bible study on the word of exodus how did we end up here because it's important to understand these things i don't know about you but when i went to school they didn't teach me this And I know since they took the Bibles out of schools in the 1960s, they stopped even talking about these things. Where do our youth, where do our children learn these today? Well, from you all. Because you're now subject matter experts. Be Bereans. Everything I'm telling you, go back it and test it in the light of Scripture. You be Bereans. But everything I'm telling you can be absolutely proved out. It's factual. You can go back just as I studied it. You can go study it and you can sit down with your kids. That's real love. Because to expect your kids to come to a Bible study once a week or to go to, you know, a, a Christian camp once a year and think that they're going to get saved and, oh, by the way, think they're going to be able to defend the faith is illogical. It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. the enemy knows exactly what he's doing. And that's why I took the time tonight to make sure we went through this. What I can tell you, and what the Hebrew tells me, just in the first verse, some of your Bibles have the word now, and that's, <clears throat> that's okay. But the literal interpretation of that is and. What God is telling me is, and he's telling you, and, It's a conjunction. What is a conjunction? It's a combination of phrases, sentences, or structure. It's a continuation. My second grade teacher would be very proud of me right now. Too bad I didn't get that together in second grade. But it's a continuation. That's what we see here of Genesis. It's really a continuation of Genesis that way. And it's interesting that the five books comprise almost one-seventh of the entire Bible. Do you know that? The Pentateuch comprises one-seventh of the entire Bible. And if God took time to make one-seventh of all Scripture important and foundational, we ought to learn it. We ought to study it and we ought to understand it. Not just to learn it as something as though we want to just, oh, that's a great story. I don't use that for the Bible. These are accounts. These are real people. This happened. But again, you be a Berean. I believe the dating in this is around 1446. You be a Berean. But I believe God said in his word, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. Right? He's told us. So what's the purpose of the book? Right? Well, ultimately the Exodus gives us an account of the Hebrews' departure from Egypt to Sinai. And what else? While establishing a covenant for his people. Where else do we see anything like that in the world? Look at all the other religions out there. Notice I didn't say relationships. Religions. Buddhism. Taoism. Hinduism. Picanism. Throw it in there. Humanism. Okay, that's the days we're living. Humanism. And you show me where God went through such great depths to not only redeem a people, not because of how great they were. As a matter of fact, the Israelites weren't that great. But they were to be holy and set apart a witness to all of the world. And we were grafted in on that plan. Praise Jesus, the Gentiles. And we too are to be a witness to all of the world. And that's what he established in the going out. Not only the saving of a people, the preservation that Joseph began, he worked through a vessel like Joseph, but then the establishment of a covenant to the individual. That same covenant that tonight as we'll read and also celebrate in a memorial is communion. The new covenant that you and I are under through his shed blood. Is that not wonderful? And so as I was preparing and I was saying, Lord, how are we going to, God, how is this tie into the communion? God was like, how can you not see the deliverance I gave you? I wrote a book about it. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You did it again. Lord, you did it again. So I'll read verses one through six for our first passage. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. <clears throat> all those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. So as I mentioned already, as you look at verse one there, we see the word names, right? Again, original in the Hebrew, that's where the title came for from this book. And then we also see that sometimes while it says now, it actually has and. That's the real, as I've mentioned, and it's in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the same thing we see in the Hebrew, in the original manuscripts. Now, it's a conjunction, a connection of words, sentences, right? Phrases or clauses, it's joining two passages together. It's taking chapter 50 and joining chapter one of Exodus. That's what God has done. And we call that a bridge clause in, 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 in a seminary somewhere when they're teaching, well, where's the bridge clause? Where, where, how's it connecting the two passages? Well, God did it with a simple word. He used the conjunction in the Hebrew, and. I love it. We didn't have to search it out. Man didn't have to make it up. God did it. He said, oh, and. Let me tell you how this continues. I'm not done In Genesis, and these are the names of the children. And my plan continues, even though this man Joshua is going to die, as we all will die, and there will be another man that will stand in the gap, and his name will be Moses. And when Moses dies, and, because we go to the next book, there will be another man. What's his name? Joshua. Thank you, Jesus. So we see that he's connecting it. And again, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with the King James as far as the new King James using the word now, but you miss the original. When you get to the original language, you miss that conjunction. Now is what, what's now? Now more of an adverb, right? Now is an adverb defining the, the time of the action of the verb. And that's all well and good, but that doesn't do anything for us. God is showing continuation. We don't get that from an adverb that way. As I said, thank you, Mrs. Lynn, my second grade teacher. She'd be so proud right now. Anyway, most of you now can tune back in at this point. (laughs) The idea is that we're picking up the account from Genesis by a family that was led by a man by the name of Israel or Jacob, right? And they were on their way to Egypt. Many of you have been with us for the account. You know he made his way down. He went through unfortunate circumstances, eventually finds favor by interpreting a dream from Pharaoh, but he gets put second in command and then is told to come on down, you know, to Gershon, right? To, to come into this beautiful place, this fertile land, Goshen, where he's going he's to come down and he's, he's going to experience. Can you imagine walking into that? I mean, really, put, your, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They've been in Canaan. They didn't see anything like Egypt. They're going to the big city, man. They go down. The first thing they see is one of them big, great pyramids. You know, I I took some notes on these pyramids because I don't think people realize the architecture, the engineering that Egypt had and that God was very deliberate by bringing them there. They were going to learn. Moses was going to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was going to have the best instruction of that time possible. And then he's going to bring them out and set aside a people group for him. Do you, do you th- I mean, God's plans. Many times, I'm sure when Moses was three months old or less, being put in a water—you know, the water in a basket that's sealed and pitched with tar—I'm thinking, this is—you know—if he could talk as a three-month-old, he's going, "This is not part of the plan." But God had great plans. The the 400 years of slavery and bondage, Israelites are going, "What is going on here?" But during that time, the the multiplication effect that's going to happen, 600,000 people, men specifically, that by the time they leave over 400 years will be somewhere between three to four million. Some say 1.8 to two, but you get the point. Incredible numbers. But that was all just by coincidence, right? Of course not. So Clearly, he was given favor. He's placed second in command. He walks in, and all of a sudden, he sees this this Giza. He sees this huge pyramid. He's trying to look at it, right? It's one of the biggest. I mean, now, according to history, Egyptian history, when would they date that period of Giza? 2504. Do you see why I told you they're mutually exclusive? They date the birth of that. Well, guess what? If it was in 2504, you and I wouldn't be looking at it today. It would have been destroyed in a worldwide flood that occurred when? 23. Well, now do you know why we backed into the date? It's important. God has given us clues and fingerprints all over the place. We just have to seek. That's why we spent that time. Now it is the oldest of the seven, seven wonders of the ancient world. That um, had roughly 2.3 million blocks, each block weighing some 5,000 pounds, the total weight being around 5.75 million ton. And they didn't have the tools that we use through the technological revolution today or the industrial revolution. If you're an architect, if you're an engineer and you hear this, your mind stops for a moment. The, you, my, my dad used to do. Many of you know, my dad was in construction, a building inspector, and what have you, and all that. You know, when I can remember going, my dad would always say, when they used to set foundations or footers, back in the day, he goes they were true. He goes, nowadays you go into most house and you take a square. Even in the newer houses built, put a square in the corner of your house. I don't. Want, I'm going to wreck it for you people that are OCD right now. I can tell already. You're going to walk into your house. You're going to put a square in a corner and you're going to go and you're going to flip out on me. Most houses aren't square, truly square. Do you know that this pyramid is perfectly oriented north? Due north. I mean, literally, when you take the four cardinal points of a compass, you could directly align it with the footprint of this pyramid. Our modern technology couldn't do it any better. Better than most of the houses we see built today. Commercial, residential. And it's got a 13-acre footprint. We can't even get a 1,000-foot building plumb and square. And they got a 13-acre. You know, what's the rule of thumb? As you span load, as you go out, what happens? You tend to get off a little bit, and then what are you going to do by the end of the 13th acre? You're going to be off a lot. Perfect. Perfect. I can't understand it. The scientists, the historians, they scratched their head. Well, wait a minute! How can this be? Hmm. <laughs> the Sphinx. They would have saw the Sphinx. Do you know that's carved in the limestone? You ever carve limestone? Yeah, everybody, every day, right? Two hundred and forty feet long, sixty-six foot high. They're walking in. They got their caravan. They're like, hey, look at the man with the lion body. I mean, what else? You're walking in. You're seeing this kind of stuff. Where are we? You know, it's that old Toto. I'm not in Kansas anymore, right? I mean, I'm not in Canaan anymore. I mean, they walk in and they see these things. And in verse 5, it says that they recount, whether it's 70 or 75 Again, if you count Joseph and his kids or his his children like that, Manasseh, Ephraim, or not, that's how you get to the 75. We talked about that. Making this trip, going into the Goshen, this fertile land. But in verse 6, we read, And Joseph died, and his brother and all that generation. Good times do not last forever. Anybody that's over the age of 40, I don't need to convince you of that. Our minds think we're 20. Our bodies remind us we're not. I always say it's not the years, it's the mileage. And for some reason, I feel like I got a lot of mileage. You guys got a lot of mileage? A lot of mileage, man. But Joseph died, and just like all of us, we too will die unless we're raptured. I'm praying for the rapture plan, man. But God's work doesn't end with that. Just as it didn't, as I mentioned, it continues. And who stands in the gap? Moses. We'll get introduced to him in chapter 2. So they find themselves in this place where they had great favor for many years. I mean, Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, was given a king's funeral. A king's funeral. I mean, 70. Instead of 72, 72 was the number for the king or pharaoh. But it was 70 we talked about that last week. It was a king's funeral. And in a generation or less, Joseph, he's dead while he dies a few years later. But I mean, when he comes back, I think it's 17 years, you do the math, but he comes back and then what happens? Within a couple generations. Now, I'm going to not try to confuse you here, but if you look at Egypt, we're what? We're below the equator. You all with me on that? We're below the equator. So that means when I say coming down, it's reversed over there. So if I say coming down, don't let me confuse you. But the, the upper part of Egypt, when the king comes down to take out the high coast people, which were actually the shepherd kings, which explains why Joseph found a little favor, even though they thought shepherds or herdsmen were what? an abomination. But as he makes his way down, now again, if you're there, I'm saying it wrong, but where we are, we're below the equator, so it is down for us. He makes his way down, and what does he do? He sees these high coast kings, and he's going to run them out. And they were very powerful in Upper Egypt. So he comes down with his establishment, he comes in, he takes all those kings out, those kings leave the area, he now sets up camp. I don't know Joseph. I don't know his family. I don't know who this guy is. And what happens? He says what? Well, let's read. But the children of Israel were fruitful. Well, excuse me. And Joseph died and all his brothers But the children of Israel were fruitful. And they increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. we've already talked about that, how they grew from 600,000 men and continued to grow. I would say so. I mean, I think it's an understatement to say they multiplied mightily. Where did this come from? I mean, think about the blessing. What did God tell them? Do you remember? Back to Genesis 9, 7. When they got off the boat, go forth, multiply, have babies, be happy, right? They were told to multiply, right? God gave that command to Noah and his children. but Even before that, to Adam and Eve. But this blessing that we read here in verse 7, that as they grew exceedingly and mighty, the land was filled with them. So now you've got a million or more, a couple million Hebrew kids walking around. Everybody's looking at him, and this new king's coming down, and he goes, what's with these people? They're out in Goshen. They're getting pretty fierce, and oh, by the way, what are they? Oh, they're shepherd people. Oh, they're, I don't want to touch them, right? They're an abomination. They're like the high coast that we just got rid of. What's he afraid of? Well, not only is he insecure, as most manic Men are that are seeking power that way. But what's going to happen? He's afraid that the high coasts and, the, and these guys are going to join together and do what? Come against them. So if you understand the, the, the history and the context, now you understand why this man is thinking that. Because, hey, they were shepherd people. He's shepherd people. What if they come together and overthrow us? You see, that's, that's what's really going on here. He's concerned for his kingdom. But this blessing that God has given them, because he said, be fruitful, be multiply, it introduces the problem. Let's look at verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt, we just talked about that, who did not join Joseph, because he came down from the upper Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happened in the event of war that they also join, Who? Their enemy, who was the enemy? The high coast people, the people that they just ran out of the area. What if they join up together with them and fight against us and so go up out of the land? So now again, this king didn't know Joseph, had no allegiance to him, didn't interpret any dream of his. You know, there was no pay me back, you know, nothing like that. He's, he's like, I don't know you. It's amazing how short-term memories can be of humans short term. I think many of us here, when we first got saved, we were reading our Bibles every day. We were so pressed into it. Years went by. We got a little comfortable, didn't we? A little lax, maybe. (coughs) Lucky if we read our Bibles once a week. I know that's none of you, but I assure you there's people out there that that's their lives. I think of people 9/11. I was down in the city for 9/11. Many of you know that. I've told that shared that story. And I was down there and I'll tell you what, right after 9/11, man, you couldn't get into the churches. They were packed. They were overflowing. And here we are, how many years later? 16, something like that. Going to be 17. And everything's back to status quo. Where are all those people? Lord, I mean it this time. What happened? Short-term memory loss. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. We do. There's not a one of us that's in this place right now that's not struggling with something. We all are. But it's Jesus Christ that gets us through it not our intellect, not, not, not compromising. And in verse 10, we see that this, this king, he's focused with fears. I mean, he's insecure. He's com- maybe you know, he's concerned about the allegiance, allegiance of his own people, maybe. Maybe he's thinking that way. Hey, these guys are numerable, they're millions, and then we got our enemies. What if my own people stop following me and they're not, they're not a, you know, allied towards me and they start serving with them? What's going to happen to me? Can you imagine living like that? In constant fear of looking over your shoulder every minute? You you study the Egyptian history. There's a woman that during the time of Moses, you see, Egyptian history is very interesting. They only record victories. They don't record the losses, which is why they don't record a lot of times when they came up and they decimated much of Israel and then they'll come down, they record some of that but then they don't record the other times that there's this uprising that we'll read about where Pharaoh will put, put in his place by the living God. For some reason, that's just missing. And every other defeat that Egypt has faced just happens to be missing. That's an interesting way to tell history, isn't it? We call that reconstructionism. So, you know, he's obviously manic. He's looking over his shoulder. He's concerning. looks at the Hebrews. They're a threat. And he remembers that they're shepherds. So, hey, maybe they'll join with the high coast. But you know what's interesting I was thinking about? Why didn't he go the route of, hey, immigration? What do we see through immigration in history through the years? My grandfather immigrated here from Italy. What do we see about immigration? What normally happens? Many of your parents, your relatives immigrated here. What do they do? They assimilate, they intermarry, they, 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 they grow together. Why didn't that happen here? Why wasn't it? We see that with Assyria. As a matter of fact, that's one of the ways the Assyrians, not to jump fast forward because now we're in uh, seven, you know, 700 BC, I'm jumping a few, uh, about 700 years or more. But when we see the Assyrian invasion into Israel, well, how do they conquer them in some of the ways the Assyrians? We actually get a new people group out of that called the Samaritans. And it was because of the intermarrying with the Assyrians. That's where the Samaritan people group came from. That then become unclean or dirty to the rest of the tribes of Judah. Because they're a strange people to them. They're they're a half-breed, as they would describe it. So why don't we see this? Well, I think it's important to bring this out. We need to bring out the history here. We know Joseph wasn't responsible for that. Joseph, you know... Israel like that. He was a sojourner. He, know, he he didn't plan to stay in Israel. He knew God was going to bring him back into that promised land. Remember, we read about that in Genesis chapter 49. We knew that was part of God's plan. So maybe they were thinking, well, that's got something to do with it. But I believe, when you go back looking at it, the people of Egypt thought they were racially and ethnically superior. I mean, that's what we saw at that time for a people group. They, they actually thought they were a superior people group. And And I, you know, in my notes, I was making notes myself, and I said, I guess they missed the flood record. You might say, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Is that a cavalier statement? And I said, no, God, you know, put it in his word that we're to remember. He even tells us in nights of communion, remember, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remember the word of God. Remember what we've been taught. Study, study again. You've read the book of Genesis, read it again. You've read the book of Exodus, read it again. Why? Because he's revealing truth to us constantly through his word. What are we to remember? Well, when I read Genesis, I think it's around chapter nine there, it tells me that there was a worldwide flood. It tells me that Noah and his wife His three boys and their wives are the only one to have survived the flood. That's what my Bible tells me. Now, you either believe the word of God or you don't. You don't get the ability to say, well, I believe almost all this, but I'm not going to believe that part. That's convenient, but that's not logical. You either believe the word of God or you don't. And the minute you start compromising that, it's a very slippery slope. Like I said, you'll go back from an apologetics perspective and next thing you know, you'll subscribe to millions of years as some churches do that are in error because they've compromised the word of God. We can't do that. We have to practice good hermeneutics. We interpret scripture with scripture. You're well taught because you have the word of God. Not because someone stands up here and exegetes it. It's because you have the Word of God, and you are able to seek out the Scriptures daily, and be Bereans. So, if we go back, as I mentioned, everything tracks back to that, which means this idea of racial, you know, uh, superiority or uh, cultural superiority—it's nonsense. We're one bloodline. I just wish people would get that through our minds, through our hearts. We're one bloodline that way. You can't explain it any other way. The boat, you either believe it happened, you believe the sons procreated, and they had children, and they split off into people groups, but it all tracks back to the same root. Noah and his wife and their kids. That means that we're all related in some capacity. And guess what the DNA studies show? The same thing. Even the medical science can't deny it. No matter if they want to try to say we're ape men or we're this or that through evolution, philosophy, and nonsense. They're still teaching the same thing they were 50 years ago even though they know it's scientifically and medically wrong now. And when you go to a college professor that's an MD and I have and ask them why do they teach that, you know, I don't know, that's what we did. Oh, okay, that's good. No. They know the womb. They know there's life at conception. They they know all of this, even if it's cells that are alive that begin to form and come together at conception. They know all of that. But did they open up the dot? We don't look like little tadpoles. What are they doing? But our kids that go to these schools, they're getting indoctrinated. You better believe they're getting indoctrinated. They're believing this stuff. They're coming out. And they're going, well, see, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith said that. Great. What happened to people standing in the gap, standing on the foundation of the Word of God? Well, clearly we can see that if we're one people group and it all comes back, we can trace it all back to the Ark, where the same bloodline, regardless of the pigment of our skin, it throws that whole, a real monkey wrench in the whole idea of diversity and division, doesn't it? Our Bible and Scripture only takes this one thing on diversity, and you know what that is diversity of gifts, members of the body that can be used to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what our word teaches. Anything else is from man and the pit of hell to try to divide instead of unify. Because through division, people can be picked off. People groups, people in general. Look at the Nazis. Look what they did by trying to exterminate a people group. That's exactly what this king's going to do. You think Hitler was ingenious? Oh, you know, well, look, he just thought of this up. He's maniacal and evil. Absolutely, he is. But he didn't think it up. All he had to do was open the Bible, and there were many attempts. You and I have already read one more attempt before this. This is the second attempt we're going to read tonight, providing the Lord gives us time to get there. This is the second time we're going to read tonight. The first one was when? Genesis chapter 6. Remember that? What happened? Do you remember what happened in chapter 6? We had fallen angels to decide to come in and pollute the bloodline or the line of man, creating a superhuman being, Nephilim we call them. And what did he want to do that for? Why did the enemy, why was he trying to destroy that? Because he knew that the line would come from the seed that would eventually crush his head. Genesis chapter 3. It's always been a battle. And the Semitic people, the, the Jews, he knows it's going to come through their line because the covenant was given to them. So he knows it's going to happen. I mean, the devil's not ignorant or biblically illiterate. He knows the word better than many and most Christians do. That's why we need to be studied up. We're in a spiritual battle. This ain't a game. If you could see what's going on in the heavenlies, if you could see the spiritual battles, you wouldn't be walking around. You'd have your Bible like this and your hands like this. You wouldn't be putting it down. Probably wouldn't leave the house either. He'd be so terrified. But But it's this idea of superiority of race and ethnicity. ethnicity. Um, It's a primitive attempt at division. It masquerades diversity by separating God's people. It's very, I get a check in my spirit when people talk about diversity anymore. I used to hear it and think, oh, okay, that's good. Diverse thoughts, yes. But people We need to be focused on unity, not division. Don't have anything to do with it. God is Lord of all of the creation. He's Lord of all of his creation. Unity is found in Jesus Christ. And we all need to be transformed into his likeness. If we're transformed into his likeness, there is no division. Because we're walking in Christ. That's why we're all here. We're unified in Jesus. We all came from different backgrounds, different you know, income levels, different economics, different everything. And you know what? We all belong. We're all different. Different pigment of skin, different you know, culture, ethnicity, all that. None of it matters to us, does it? Because we have Jesus Christ. And we see our adoption, if I can say it that way, because that's what Paul calls it as Gentiles, into Christ, into the sea. He is the vine, we are the branches, right? Or I reverse that sometimes. Go with me. You know what I'm saying. So there's no mass assimilation here with the immigrant population, the culture of Egypt, because they thought they were superior. They wouldn't allow their people. That's why it was so spectacular that Joseph was given a wife, Potipharah, remember that? She was given her as a, as, a, as a wife there. They enslaved the Hebrews, and they're going to put them in the bondage. Let's look at verse 11. It says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply city, Pithom and Ramses. These were military cities. These were cities that would be used for combatant, to fight. Th- that's what they were building for him. Okay? That's what we see here. Go ahead and put the uh, picture on. Many question this. This idea that whether the Jews were ever put into slavery or bondage, right? They also say, well, there was never taskmasters or anything like that. And, you know, there was no Holocaust. Don't you know that's crazy? That's made up. Are you kidding me? We have all the data and all the history and everything reliable to show it, but still people won't believe. It's not reality. There's so much proof for that. Again, we see reconstructionism, rewriting history. It's a perversion of their own suppositions. You see, when the children of Israel were set to slave labor, they built many great cities and monuments in Egypt. We don't know exactly when the forced labor began, and we don't know how long it lasted. Some estimate 284 years, 134 years. We don't know the exact details, but but there's a famous painting. I want you to see this. Look up here. This is so interesting. Of an ancient tomb in Thebes, Egypt, or what we call modern Luxor. The, tur- the tomb oversees a brick making you know brick making slaves here making these bricks. And it's in this tomb, and some believe it was during the reign of Thutomos, or Thutomoses Thut- the It could be some pharaoh, we don't really know. But you see them taking the bricks here, you see them, ca- this is in a tomb in Thebes, in, in Luxor. You're able to go in and look at it. People can travel there and see this. This was carved in, and what this is actually displaying, if you looked on the left, and then the hieroglyphic, there's also hieroglyphics, which I don't know if I got on this one. That actually goes through and shows, not only were they the, the, the Hebrews making the stones, making the bricks, putting it together, but there's one with him with a staff. And what that's to denote, and I looked it up because I, I don't read the hieroglyphics, so I needed to look it up. And it shows overseers armed with heavy whips. And their ranks denoted by a long staff. They have this long staff, and it held in their hands and Egyptian hieroglyphic determined that the the neck was long. You ever seen Egyptian where it makes the neck look longer and they have like the bracelets? That's to show power or rank. The longer the neck like a giraffe, the more rank or power that individual had. And what we see here is we see that. We see that they were carrying on these works. They were building, they were doing all this. We can't deny, did this happen? This happened. The Hebrews were put into Slavery just as the Holocaust happened. Why? Because they wanted to exterminate the line. Pharaoh, whether he knew it or not, he was being used by the devil himself to try to wipe out the line of the seed. Because if there could be no line of the seed, then what wouldn't happen? What wouldn't be fulfilled? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because God's word said that he would come Through the promised seed, the line of Judah was given. We read it in Genesis 49 and 50. It would be of the line of Judah, that there one would be a scepter that would not pass from his very hand. And here we go. Can you imagine? The boys heard this. They heard Judas get his prophecy from his dad and the Holy Spirit, Jacob, Israel that way. And then they get this. And they turn around and they go through this whole thing. And now they're going to go into bondage and slavery. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Dad, get this wrong? Did he really hear from the Holy Spirit? You know? What was going on? Let's look at 12 through 14 and then we'll move into communion tonight. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew and they were dread in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptian made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick. We just saw that. In all the manner of service in the field and their service which they made them serve was with rigor. So if you look back to verse 12, Egypt was, again, racially and ethnically biased. And yet, Israel's is gonna grow because of God's blessing and promise on the, over the centuries because they didn't assimilate, actually. But Look and think back with me. I, I did a, just a look at a, an update of the studies right, right now about all the, the, the happenings, if you will, with Christians in other countries today. When you look at the growth in the face of affliction, Christianity, the growth of faith, it's been the story of the people throughout all ages, for all Christians, for all Jews. When we've seen affliction, the church grows, it spreads. There was a Christian writer, an early church father by the name of Tertullian. He had a quote, and I loved it. I captured it for us. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Just think about that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, we saw that in the days of Rome. When Nero tortured the Christian, they would hang them on rocks, light them on fire, put pitch on them to keep the fire burning. And they would come up, And what do we see? The diaspora. They moved out. They went into modern day Turkey, Asia Minor. And the gospel went forward. Perpetual woman who was brought to the lions at the Colosseum. And they would go through and do all of these things to torture this woman who was with infant and child, still nursing. They took the child away. They brought her in. And she said, hold on one second. I need to pray to my God and thank him. I need to thank my God. And you, you keep reading about the early church fathers. Curse God and, and, and you'll live. I can't curse God for what has he done to me in my 80 years? Who am I talking about? If you don't know Bibereans and go look up the early church fathers, look up the testimonies and if you don't get it by next week, I'll give it to you. But that's your homework. Look, search. It's amazing to see. He said, if I, in my 80 years, I could, God has never done anything to me but all I can do is to bless him. I will never deny my God. I will never deny my Jesus. And he was burned at the stake. And the gospel went forward. And the gospel went forward. We see this happening today. Let's look at North Korea. Most of us have North Korea on the radar for different reasons. Well, there's a nuclear threat there, right? Or some type of at least atomic or bomb threat. And they're worried about, well, can the bombs hit over here and what have you, at least Japan, and pray for our, our brothers and sisters. I mean, they're atheists by large. They have one sanctioned religion, if you will, and it's the Kim jong Unism. ism I call it that, ism after it. And Christianity is forbidden there. Yet thousands of North Koreans believers lost their life in severe persecution and harsh condition in prison, work camps, every year. They're dying for their faith. This is real. The book, this word, the book of Acts, when I think about when we're in book of Acts on Sunday, it's still happening today. It doesn't have an end. It won't end till Jesus Christ comes for his church and raptures his bride off the earth. Iran, look at what's going on, Christian persecutions. It's mostly Muslim, right, converts. And it's intensified in years in Iran because Islamic law, they call it Sharia law, is strictly observed in Iran, a country that boasts the highest population of Shia Muslims in the world. The court system reserves a right there to execute male apostates. You simply convert from Islam to Christianity, and the court can sentence you to death. And the women there, they can impose life sentences on the female apostates too. Nearly all Christian activity, including proselytizing of the uh, Bible publishing, is illegal in Iran. And yet, despite the mounting persecution and severe restriction, the church in Iran continues to grow. Praise Jesus Christ. We had a speaker come in, a brother in the Lord, come over from Pakistan. He came here and he talked about what was going on in Iraq and how all the churches were being destroyed. You might remember Brother David when he came, David Ibrahim. He came over and he talked about it. He said there were six, I 6,000 or I don't remember, 6 million, 6,000 Christians there. They killed them all, but like I think 100. He says the church was decimated. So they thought And now, the underground churches are prospering, 200, you know, 2,000, growing and growing. Brings me to China. We had our brother, Pastor Ted, come in a year and a half ago, and he shared with us, he goes over to China. Well, I don't need to tell you how often. It's best I probably don't in case this recording gets heard there. But he goes to serve the underground churches there. He goes to areas puts a certain garb on that he's told to and they come and grab him and pick him up, put in an unmarked car and take him and he has no idea where he's gone. And for a period of days he goes in and then he's got a 60 watt light bulb and begins to teach the word to underground churches. Farmers come in from the field and they just pour over the word of God. The next book, he finishes acts, next book. They don't want, they can't get enough. They're coming to Christ Right now, the estimates right now in China, experts say somewhere between 80 to 130 million Christians in China pray for the church in China, the underground church, what Jesus Christ is doing. It's an incredible statistic given that it's one of the hardest nation or harshest nations for Christians to live. There's crazy state monitoring going on. It's communist. Everything they do, they monitor. And just even the number of house churches Unspeakable cruelty and persecution, lengthy imprisonments, violent beatings, ruthless torture. But within the last two years, and I've I got updated information, real time for you all, Chinese authorities have launched while they're publicizing, yeah, we allow the Bible, they have one state church they allow. That's how they're doing it. It's a very compromised Bible. But right now, despite all the, the, the persecution. They believe that every year, there's millions, not thousands, not hundreds, millions coming to Christ. And they're coming into these house churches and they're learning how to be under shepherds. They're studying the word of God and then they're going out into, off the mainland into the other areas. And they're going with their Bible. Now they have it discreetly. And they're going with the the Holy Spirit. And they have nothing else. They don't have two tunics to wear. Sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he told the 70 to do, the disciples when they went out. Oh, wow. It's happening. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We need to be praying diligently for our brothers and sisters all around us. People are coming to Christ the news will have you believe Christ, you know, Christians eliminated. Everything's gone. Europe's going down. This, that, and everything. And while there's some truth to that, the church is going to continue. You watch the revival that's going to happen in Europe because they think they've all but eliminated it. Now Americans are going over there. Now Africans that were once being ministered to by Americans and by Europe is now going back over and evangelizing the countries in which they were evangelized with. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They caught more than they were taught. They caught more than they were taught. I like that. So I, I kind of had a, just people like pictures, I thought of, a, think of a large gas funnel that's used to supply or ignite an engine. Just big funnel, man, it just pours in the gas and whoosh. And combustion happens. And what's that do? That increases velocity, inertia, pressure. And what does that do? It propels. And that's what we see happening right now in Christum. Now, in verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. I, I want to just, para, peric, is how you'd say it in the Hebrew, Perik peric, uh, describes a harshness, a severity, or a cruelty. Many of us have never experienced that or never met someone that's had that kind of cruelty. That's what it was talking about here. It's where we, we kind of denote or come to that idea of a witness. We talked about that when Pastor Henry was here. What is a witness? It's a martyr. It's where we get our term, martyr. They understand it all too well. We need to be praying for the captivity and bondage of those. And I would say here tonight that those that are hearing this, there are some that are still in bondage right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're still carrying around condemnation, that's your own doing. That's not the Lord. Jesus Christ said, lay that down, man. He says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We're not to be legalistic. We're not to take a tally at the end of the day. No. That's perfect love. That's grace. That's mercy. That's what our Savior died for, that we would be forgiven. And what about the unbeliever? You think they're not in bondage and slavery? Oh, they are. They just don't know they're spiritually blind. That's where you and I come in. That's the good news. It's great news. Because we have the only thing that can set them free. And that's the truth of the scriptures. You see, that's what God has, has called us to.